present our today's final speaker. So for me, it's not a problem of 
resources or technology. It's a problem of politics, politicians, lack of leaderships, lack of leaders. You know, I want to see a guy like John being the president of the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, uh, Secretary of the Interior, <laughs> and I and I believe that we will have a very different scenario. <laughs> that, that's why, even though I'm not a field biologist, I'm a field lawyer because I'm a lawyer by 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 train and I dedicate my life working in law, environmental law, and environmental policy. And uh, you know, I, I come to this conclusion: we have a major political problem in our hands, and we need to fix it up. In order to fix it up, we need to understand how politicians, decision makers, live, think, and rationalize. And those guys are really stubborn. They don't you know, get out of the box at all. And uh, on the other side, we still have a lot of people that think that you know, science and technology is going to fix up everything. Very recently, a, a, a British billionaire said, pledge $25 million to the scientists that, come for, that comes up with a solution to climate change. He thinks somebody's going to make a big vacuum, vacuum <laughs> thing that would, you know, take all, all the CO2 from the atmosphere and put it somewhere. No, this is a political problem. And we know that governments and public agencies are very good not to generate sustainable development. On the contrary, they are, they are the responsible to putting us under this problem. That's why for me it's not this strange to see what happened in Laguna del Tigre in Guatemala. You know, they created a national park and immediately they gave a concession for oil exploration. That's why it is not uh, uh, weird to me to see a open pit mining in national parks in Ecuador or in Gabon or in Congo. That's why for me it's not, uh, it's not rare to see uh, the U.S. government trying to open to oil drill, oil drill in the Arctic wildlife refuges because governments and public in the public structure behind the decision-making process is not well defined. It's not designed to promote sustainable development at all. In Costa Rica, we have this quite clear, not as much as I want, but quite clear. And 20 years ago, we decided to design an agency called the Ministry of Environment and Energy that, is, that takes care of energy, environment, mines, and water. All of those things in just one agency. All of those things on one minister who sets the policy, the national policies there. I used to be the Minister of uh, Energy, Mines, Water, and Environment of Costa Rica for some time. And I remember, as an anecdote, once I was invited to the minister's meeting, a meeting of ministers of mine to Argentina. It was a meeting of uh, Latin American ministers of mine. There, uh, and I got late to the meeting because I plane delay. They already begun a couple of hours before. And I got into this room where I saw a lot of, uh, you know, all well-dressed, overweight ministers there, sitting there. And when the chairman asked me who you are, I said, I'm the Minister of Environment of Costa Rica. That's my title. So everybody jumped out of their chair when they saw the Minister of Environment of Costa Rica in the meeting of Minister of Mines. <laughs> so I explained it. I'm also <laughs> the Minister of Mines of my country. 
they were not satisfied with my explanation. They felt that the spy was in their being. They felt very bad, and they treat me very unpolite. Of course, they give me a lot of argument for me to bother them for three whole days, telling them how wrong their minds are, how wrong your institutions were designed, whereby the minister of uh, environment, a colleague of a you know a government team, minister, different ministers, all are supposed to be of a working government team. A minister of environment seems like an enemy or a contrary to the ministers of, of mine. That's the situation we have everywhere, everywhere. Even here in the, in the US, you don't have a secretary of environment. You have a secretary of interior, you have the head of the EPA, and you have this and the other, and everybody tries to do things, but there's not somebody right next to the president with the title of secretary of environment, right next to the president, talking to his ear, telling that the minister of energy is not uh, correct by promoting uh, oil, oil drinking the Arctic wildlife. Just to give you an example. So we need to, for me, it's very clear that we, this is a political problem. And we need to fix it up. And we need to educate politicians. We need to educate them. We need to re-engineer the structure, the agencies, that uh, are in charge of managing or exploiting natural resources as a whole. So Costa Rica has done some things in that line, and we see some progress, not as much as we wish. And I want to share with all of you this afternoon some of the things that we've been doing there and some of our challenges. I'm going to talk specifically around the uh, financial mechanism, which is called the Payment for Environmental Services. But you have to have in mind that this is just an instrument. To implement a policy is not the main objective, but I will use it as the center or core of a political-oriented discussion this afternoon. <coughs> and I want you know read what is on my back because you all can read very well, and I can go very quickly to the um, uh, formal academic part of it. But ecosystem services are quite important, and you all know very well why they are very important. The most important thing is that um, that um, that most of these ecosystem services are are invisible to economies and decision makers. They, they, they don't see it. They don't. They are not being reflecting whatever we try to measure in our economies. Uh, that's why we try to give them a value to begin to, uh, to generate information that will eventually give us the condition to begin doing the changes in the mind of many people. In Costa Rica, uh, which is a very small country, just 4.4 million people living there, 70% of the land is not good for agriculture or cattle ranching, traditional agriculture or cattle ranching. We have dedicated most of our um, land to production activities. And as a matter of fact, uh, even though it is a forested-oriented country, everything we did in Costa Rica was uh, based on expanding the agricultural frontier uh, because we thought that you know promoting uh, agriculture and cattle ranching was the way to promote the economic growth. And everybody believed that forested land were unproductive lands, unproductive lands. Even though scientists and academics for many, many years were telling us how fragile those ecosystems were, how rich in biodiversity those ecosystems were, in the 50s and 60s, 45% of the GNP was generated by agriculture and cattle ranching. So 
the policy to promote economic growth was based in expanding those areas to produce more meat and to produce more agricultural goods and, uh, and products. So what, what, what happened there? Well, let's see what happened in Costa Rica. This is the map of 1950 with 72% uh, of the country with forests. And you see how we lost the forest cover throughout time. By 87, we just had 21% uh, of the country with forests. This is what we call the striptease of Costa Rica. <laughs> because they, they, Costa Rica lost all the forest cover. And we were left here, I would say, topless by 1987. And that was basically because all those national policies were oriented to change the use of land, of the soil, of, of the land from forest to something else, even though as I mentioned before, more, most of the land was not good for those um, land uses, especially extensive cattle ranching. Everything was oriented to uh, that generate deforestation. The, um, the agrarian reform, land tenure policies, the taxes, uh, banking uh, regulations, you, so you, you didn't have access to title land if you had forests on your land. You had to pay a tax for unproductive lands if you own forests in your land. Uh, you were not able to access credit from the public banks, banks if you own forests. Everything was aimed to keep cutting the forest, and we did a great job. Costa Rica had the world title of uh, the highest rate of deforestation per capita of the world, and the highest, uh, highest external death per capita of the world at the same time. So we were under big, big stress. Even though by uh, oops, even though by um, 1969 we began trying to revert this process, this this process, and we draft our first laws around forest protection. We create an agency. We create the National Park Service, and we began to do uh, an effort. At the beginning, we thought that well, we our objective was, and it has been always our main objective is protect biodiversity and stop deforestation. That has been our, our national policy. And we have gone through many, many different implementation processes and instruments. At the beginning, we began to plant trees everywhere. And the government uh, gave resources from taxpayers' money to pay subsidies to those who plant trees. At the beginning, it was the, the policy was based on an, on an a exemption to the um, income tax, thinking that that was the way to restore lands. But at the end, well, you know, farmers and small farmers don't pay income tax. So at the end, the ones who were attracted by it, that were companies, corporations, many corporations without any major interest in forestry, corporations that were using those incentives as a tax shelter, companies that, that um, sell cars, computers, textiles. So we found out that that was not a good idea. It took us 10 years to find out that. Then we changed to another policy of subsidizing, paying for planting trees. Uh, and well, it, uh, it was nice because we developed a lot of, you know, uh, farmers' organization planting trees and agroforestry, a lot of things, but it was always by planting trees. And it, uh, those subsidies really grew up. There was a time that we were putting around $5 million every single year to pay contract for tree plantations. And, and we didn't develop a lot of science around the species we, we planted. We didn't have a lot of knowledge where to plant, how to plant. But we learned. 
the hard way through trial and error process that that was you know some kind of positive. But in the in the early uh, and we began changing laws as well. We began uh, improving our legislation and policies, <coughs> and we got into the nineties with a very difficult and complex scenario. Uh, since the, the subsidies uh, were the channeled by the Ministry of Finance and those, ro uh, and those resources came from the taxpayers' money, the Minister of Finance, I remember, was uh, hired by USID to do an assessment. I did a lot of assessment on deforestation at that time with a big group of people. I, I can say I'm an expert on deforestation. And uh, on, on the underlying reasons of deforestation. And, um, uh, in one of those studies, we did a, a, a financial study to the Minister of Finance that has been putting a lot of money for the reforestation programs by those subsidies, or those subsidies, yes. And we come up with a very interesting uh, conclusion. We have up to 94 invest the country around 90 million dollars in tree plantations, and we went to the field and valued the, the and valued the value of those trees and we didn't got even to $40 million. So when that information come to the desk of the Minister of Finance, he said, this is an awful bad business for the country. We've been investing a lot of resources in tree plantations. You know, we, don't, we are not gonna see a good uh, dividend out of this. We tried to explain to the Minister of Finance that there were other invisible benefits associated to that, but he, was, he never understood us, and he, uh, said this is the last year I'm going to give you all resources from the central government to pay subsidies for the forestry sector. No more. Because we don't have a lot of money, the government, and forestry is not a priority from the central government. And he took a long list of financial priorities, building roads, building airports, building ports, building schools, paying policemen, paying doctors, uh, I mean, the list was big, and when they put the list in front of me, I, I, I couldn't even agree with him. Yes, of course, uh, for me, as a Costa Rican, it was uh, it was more important to find out, to use those very scarce resources, those priorities, rather than what I was doing. I even me, I agree with the minister. So we were in a big problem because we didn't know what to, to expect at that time. But at that time, we were in Congress doing some very interesting things. One was that we were passing a new laws that, uh, that uh, established a prohibition on deforestation. You know, we all know, and everybody in this room and many other parts of the world agrees that deforestation is really bad. It is really bad. And do you realize it is legal everywhere? Or almost everywhere? It is not only legal, but it is promoted by governments. Go to the Amazon, go to the Congo Basin, go to Central America. I mean, deforestation, and I, I studied a lot about deforestation, especially the underlying reasons, is not something we can blame to the timber industry or cattle ranchers or soybean or coffee, no, 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 no. Is our central government the responsible of deforestation because they still think that forested land are unproductive lands. I remember in Costa Rica scientists telling us that, you know, agriculture, he, after 30 years, he come to the conclusion that agriculture was the biggest threat to biodiversity. He was there in this big uh, symposium. And, and unfortunately for him, I was the next guy speaking, and I said, no, the scientist is wrong. 
his, assess, his, his uh, statement is incorrect. It's not agriculture, the major threat to biodiversity. Our ministers of agriculture, they're responsible, the major threat to biodiversity. Ministers as politicians and policymakers of agriculture are the guys promoting through different policies and market stimulus the change of use of land from forest into something else. In, in most cases, in very fragile ecosystems, in most cases in soils that are not good for traditional agriculture. <laughs> and ministers of agriculture are the ones in charge of rural development, not the ones who really think that uh, his major uh, assignment is to expand the agricultural frontier so we can put those unproductive lands with forests into productive land with crops. So one of the most important things we did in Costa Rica was banning the change of use of land. Deforestation is illegal. If you own a forest, you're gonna die with that forest on your back, no matter what. <laughs> it may seem extreme, yes, it may seem extreme. But we were under such a pressure by all those stimulus. At the same time, by, 1990, uh, by 1996, we already knew many of those stimulus that were uh, promoting deforestation. And one which was very clear was a tax on unproductive lands which uh, many people used to have, um, like the case of my grandfather, I'm a fourth generation coffee grower, and my, farm, my grandfather bought a farm in 1942 to produce coffee. He has 600 hectares. He did some soil studies, and he found only 200 hectares of that farm were good for coffee. So he clear-cut the forest in 200 hectares, keep the rest on forest, and the end, for 25 years, dedicated to coffee until 1962 that this law was uh, proving Congress where you had to pay a tax for unproductive lands. So my grandfather was obliged to pay a tax for those 400 hectares of forest he kept for 25 years what he did. He chopped all that forest and filled it with cows. He didn't even know how to milk a cow, but he was forced <laughs> to do that. Of course, after 20 years, he broke, his dairy operation broke. The coffee went, the coffee went really good until the prices uh, crashed down in the international market. But the cow, it was unsustainable to do those things. So when we began identifying those stimulus by different policies from different agencies, some very sp specific small agencies, some from the central government, we began to change things into something more positive. We began to identify those per perverse incentives and we came into, you know, declaring, declaring in 1996 uh, deforestation as illegal. Okay, that's kind of easy. Because the question was how we are going to enforce that. I mean, people live in the forest, indigenous communities, farmers, they own forests. How are they going to make a living out of that? But that time, we were already thinking and doing some research about how to, you know, um, to incentivize, not, not, not only subsidize for those who plant trees, but also subsidize, subsidize those who own forests. So we came up with the, with the, uh, with the concept of uh, payment of environmental services as the way we should proceed. So the forestry law says, forest, forest plantation, and other ecosystems provide essential services to people and economic activities at the local, national, and global level. So we did a study, we found out that in a tropical, old-growth tropical forest in Costa Rica, there are around 32 different environmental services. We grouped them in four, water, 
Green, uh, greenhouse uh, gases, biodiversity landscape. So the law says that uh, there should be a payment for the uh, the payment for environmental services is a mechanism implemented to pay the owners of the land for the above mentioned services provided to society. Basically, same thing here. Most the most important thing is that there's, this is not money coming from tax taxpayers. This is, more, this is a private transaction within the provider of the environmental service and the user. And the government is in the middle, setting policy, rule, procedure, and administrating the process. And I'm going to go in some detail explaining that. One of the most important studies we did was valuing it. And we found out that those environmental services of those four groups of environmental services, the value was within $150, $300 per hectare per year. That's the, the only evaluation we did. So well, the first thing we did immediately we passed that law was this is the provider of the environmental services by fixing CO2 emissions by this group of people who are users of these environmental services law. So let's charge for that. We put a tax on fuels of 1.5% in 1996. Everybody in Costa Rica who uses fossil fuel pays to a owner of a land that has a forest, a tree plantation, or an agroforestry system for carbon sequestration. The guys who, who own forests we don't pay him. At that time, we thought that that was, but now we've been tuning up the system and the mechanisms and the concepts as well. Now, those guys who own natural forests, we don't pay them for carbon sequestration because there's a balance within emission and, you know, there's a balance. What we pay them is for avoid deforestation. Because uh, deforestation, as uh, John told us, is the second most important source of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere after burning fossil fuels. This generates a fund of around uh, $8.5 million every year, depends on consumption and, and oil prices as well. But it's administrated by Fona FIFA, which is a private public organization. So uh, we said, well, wonderful. Again, at that point, and I don't want to underestimate the complexity of this process, because putting a tax on fuel for, car for carbon sequestration is not easy anywhere. You know, go ask Mr. Bush if he wants to do it. <laughs> it's not easy. Go ask President Chirac if we want to do it. Go ask Prime Minister Blair if we want to do it. You can ask any head of state about that. It's not easy. The thing is, in Costa Rica, we were preparing information and educating decision makers of how important it is to invest, uh, not for the sake of future generation, which is important, but, but because of the sake of the short-term economic results, that was our strategy. So we put that tax on fuel, uh, and we began to generate these funds. And we began to pay around um, $42 per hectare per year as an average within three plantations and, and, uh, and uh, forest conservation. We still kept for a while the same old mechanism of paying the same amount of money that used to uh, be implemented uh, while we were subsidizing, but we've been changing a little bit. But the thing here is that we found out that uh, we may have a possibility to do something very big by developing a mechanism to pay environmental services. So we designed a very interesting project called Eco Market, 
with some of these objectives. The most important objective for me is not there, but was building capacity within the government to be really administrate and you know make this something very big. This project is quite big, it's almost fifty million dollars. It has a loan from the World Bank, $32 million, a GEF grant for $8 million. The government of Costa Rica put $8.5 million, and there was a loan here to do this work. The interesting thing here is this, a loan for environment conservation. There's not much countries that uh, accept a loan, this means a financial responsibility, for a environmental program. As a matter of fact, yeah, there's always thought, there's always <coughs> the belief that um, the environmental sector can be benefited by grants and financial cooperation from rich countries. Costa Rica uh, human development standards are so high that no agency, no agency in the world give now resources to Costa Rica. You know, the, the life expectancy in Costa Rica is higher than in the U.S. Uh, and many social and educational standards are way beyond our region, so we don't receive money. The only way we found out that we were able to, to gather big funds to implement a project that the one we wanted to do at Ecomarco was to a loan. So at that time, I was Vice Minister of the Environment of Costa Rica. We did this problem with the World Bank, but I was unable as Vice Minister of Environment to sign on behalf of the government of Costa Rica for this loan. I had to go to the Minister of Finance. So I went to the Minister, this is another very interesting anecdote. I went to the Minister of Finance office and I told him, you know, we have this excellent project. You should believe everything I say to you. <laughs> and I explained him everything. And at the end, I tell you, well, there's one thing that is important you to know. I need your approval for a $32 million grant. <laughs> of course, he jumped. He jumped out of his chair. <laughs> he took a small pay, uh, paper like this, and he said, $32 million. You're not in my priority list of uh, loans with the bilateral agencies. I mean, we need to make schools, hospitals, roads, this, that, 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 that. Yeah, you're not there. <laughs> How do you expect me to support you? Uh, and then he took me another document and he says, you know, you're from the environmental sector. I don't see you in my financial report. You don't contribute anything to the GNP. How come are you going to expect me to give you a, a, a approval to go to the World Bank for a grant of $32 million? My goodness, I was in trouble at that moment. I was thinking, what can I do? What can I say? And I told the minister, I began to tell him how bad the situation was. We were losing species, we were losing forests, and the poor people, and the poor family. I tried to touch his heart. But I didn't know that the Minister of Finance are like reptiles. They are cold-blooded. 